All right, so welcome to our special edition of our Tuesday night Bible study that's uh, normally held at Wright State, and we normally sit around in a big conference table format and have more of a discussion. However, Wright State's on spring break, and the one thing that we've, for whatever reason, never worked out is how, how to record those on Tuesday nights very well, because um, people listening to our podcast is actually a uh, we're getting a lot of feedback from really even all over the world of people listening to the podcast. So, um, not a lot of people, but but people in very diverse places. So, uh, in any case, uh, we are continuing the series we started a year and a half ago called "Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity." Uh, this is the right state version. We have versions for a couple other campuses. We think this will take about four years to finish. We're about a year and a half into it. Um, Stephen, did you print out the 15 emphases and all that? I was going to read those. Um, so, you don't have them on a sheet of paper? Why don't you just get one out of my black bag or something? Okay. Well, maybe we'll end with that. Maybe you can have that ready by the end of the message. Okay, so um, if you look in Roman numeral one, what we're trying to do is we're trying to look at 15 biblical emphasis for rediscovery and restoration. And we talked uh, at the beginning of this series about the need for why uh, we think that uh, modern Christianity is not as biblical as most Bible-following Christians think it is. And um, one is the lack of any approach to church history and seeing how other Christians have expressed the faith over the centuries and a lot of other reasons. But in any case, one of the ways we know that is because in Acts 17, the disciples were actually accused of turning the world upside down. And... Um, They really did. If you really study the Roman uh, history, uh, Rome was a culture with philosophical presuppositions very similar to us, very similar problems, uh, increasing state domination, increasing uh, trouble uh, with its imperialistic uh, desires that, that caused the budget to run up, increasing welfare state in the cities, uh, increasing divorce rate, um, it was an even harsher culture than our culture, and so forth. And Christianity entered that culture and was actually uh, effectively illegal from 64 AD to 313 AD, yet continued to grow and grow, and by the end of the 4th century had become the official state religion of Rome. And really, as the, especially in the West, as the Western part of the empire crumbled, it was really Christianity that picked up the pieces. As um, so, in any case, um, you know, Jesus said the church is supposed to be the salt of the earth, and salt stops society from corrupting. If the church is doing its job, we should actually be becoming a more just, free, moral, uh, gracious, uh, and righteous society. All of the, those are not mutually exclusive, as most modern people think they are. So in any case, uh, 
the list I don't have is the 15 emphases, and I was going to kind of review those a little bit. But we, we did the first four emphases at Wright State last year. I think the first one was what it means to love God. Um, boy, the second one was grace, what it means to walk by grace, because grace is defined today as just God's unmerited or undeserved acceptance. But grace goes beyond that to empower us to, to walk like Christ and do the mission and kingdom of God that God uh, would have us to do to become Christ-like in our life. Grace empowers us, in other words. And uh, that's why we have a slogan, acceptance as you are, empowerment to grow. That's what we try to uh, endeavor to do here at Grace Christian Fellowship. Uh, next, um, we looked after we looked upon grace upon grace, we looked at the church and all kinds of ideas. Uh, if there's anything that characterizes modern Protestantism, it's a lack of any ecclesiology. The church is not that emphasized. People more approach the church from what they can get from it rather than as, in a, as a community of believers that's discipling one another and, and on a mission. And so uh, people's relationship to the uh, church has become more of a like a consumer relationship. And so um, we looked at the church, then we looked at leadership development. Today we develop leaders by sending them to seminaries and so forth, which in, we are very oriented towards biblical education. Uh, probably no church that I've ever seen has been is on that as is, is, is big of an emphasis as we are. However, um, you know, once you really learn some things about education, doesn't you don't have to go very far with your education to begin to realize that school really slows down the education process. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, once you really have a desire to learn uh, all kinds of things about all kinds of things, then, you know, school tends to get in the way of that, actually, eventually. So... Um, the, in the New Testament, they raised up leadership from within through a community discipleship process. And frankly, if, if uh, like uh, some guys told me when I was 17 years old, just start to serve. And if uh, you have ministry in your life, it'll become obvious over time. And so um, that's, in fact, what happened when I was in grad school. I was asked to start a campus ministry. That campus ministry went from nothing to about 70 very on fire students in a couple of years. And that was how we began to start thinking about training those people and equipping them to send them out to start churches in Tampa, Florida, Columbus, Dayton, Cincinnati, other places. So um, <clears throat> so let's get into today's discussion. And uh, today we're continuing on this whole year. Uh, we are actually looking at, uh, on the back of this sheet, is, is kind of what we did fall semester. But the, the, the whole year... We're kind of looking at this uh, emphasis of rediscovering and restoring the entire Bible as the Word of God. You may be aware that very few evangelicals read the Old Testament much, and that most Christianity today is kind of a preconceived systematic theologies with proof text. But the idea of actually mining the Scriptures completely to understand their context and read whole books and, and look for major themes... Uh, that's sort of been lost in our time. So uh, what we're trying to do is kind of equip people 
to read their whole Bibles and understand the whole Bible is one message about the king of the kingdom, Jesus Christ, and about the coming kingdom of God, which is not coming after he comes back, but is already here and is increasing uh, as, as he liberates uh, more and more cultures for his, for his glory. So, then this semester we're looking at humanistic Christianity, and if you look at Roman numeral three on your outline, uh, we um, looked at the birth of humanism, and we defined humanism. We looked at a concept called presuppositionalism, and that's the idea that men think that there's, a, there's this myth of ob objectivity or neutrality, and nobody comes to any data objective or neutral. And so uh, the Bible postulates that men outside of Christ are highly motivated to develop thought systems that, that run from God, deny God, deny his creation so that they won't be accountable. And so we looked at uh, some introductory concepts about epistemology and about worldviews and so forth. So then a couple weeks ago, we looked. We spent only two weeks looking at what it developed. Um, started developing in some ways, and maybe as early as the late 18th century. Certainly had some boost in the 1830s, um, but really kind of got cracking, you might say, uh, shortly after America's Civil War in the 1870s and through the 1930s. There was what was known um, as the fundamentalist modernist constant. Uh, controversy. Um, Stephen, you remember the uh, the name of it in England that we were talking about in the time of Spurgeon? What? Oh, they had another name. Do you? Um, anyway, but in 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 America, it was called the modernist versus fundamentalist controversy. So the modernists embraced the things we studied the last two weeks: evolutionary. Uh, view of, of life and um, along with you know applying that to social theory such as social Darwinism and so forth and um, and a thing called higher criticism which kind of guts the authority of the Bible and uh, on the rest of page one is some some review of that I don't know how much I really want to get into any of the review I guess I want to say that evolution and higher criticism, I look at them as fraternal twins. They're both based on presuppositions of materialism, which is a, we're not talking about materialism in the sense that you have to have more nice cars and better clothes. That may be a consequence of, of a philosophy of materialism, but the philosophy that material is eternal instead of God as spirit being eternal and his creating the time-space continuum and the material world at a, at a particular point in time for his purpose. And the idea that matter was always existed and that all things are, are understood in terms of natural and matter, there's not a spiritual or supernatural side. And so uh, materialism, when it takes the form of evolution and when it takes the form of um, higher criticism, in, in kind of the whole liberal modernistic church, it's always uh, pretty aggressively anti-supernatural. It you know wants to deny that there was a virgin birth, a resurrection, that miracles happen today, that people get healed and delivered. If uh, someone were to hear 
Leah Gray stand up and, and talk about how she was delivered of her asthma. She did on a Sunday morning. They would just say, they would a priori dismiss it because they have an a priori worldview that, that God doesn't do those things. And of course, that takes, you would have to be God to, to be able to substantiate that assumption. So that's the problem is, you know, you're bringing presuppositions and axioms to, to your understanding of the world that are, that you hold uncritically and they're unprovable. So hopefully we understood that. Uh, evolution uh, was the belief of all ancient societies. Uh, it just wasn't pseudoscientific evolution. As we talked about, it was mythopoeic evolution, which we can't, re we can't rehash what all that means tonight. Uh, scientism is the idea that if enough scientists say that it's true, then it's true. I can remember uh, just barely being able to squeak out an A in a political science class in the 1970s because I resisted the idea that the world was going into a new ice age. And anyone who didn't believe, because the majority of scientists told us we're going into a new ice age, if anyone didn't believe that, they were a priori stupid. So, um, and, and if in scientism, whatever the prevailing scientific theories are, um, whether they're proven or not proven, it just needs to have enough scientists to assert them to make them reality. And really, that's the essence of evolution. Evolution is not only um, incompatible with biblical tenets, but it's, it's unprovable scientifically. First of all, science does with, deals with current processes that you can test in repeated experiments now. I don't know any scientists that are that old and uh, that were there. And it's, um, the best we could do is create models that say, well, if uh, evolution were true, we should expect to find these things. And if creation is true, we should expect to find these things. And... Um, that's that's the, the the most we can do. We talked about a lot of a lot of things that are very untenable in the in the in the and even if you study the evolutionist debates with the other evolutionists, the biggest debate issue is evolutionists chewing out other evolutionists because they say if evolution is true, we've got to find a mechanism that's that that uh, explains species becoming new species and that they are that they are evolving into some higher state no one has found such a mechanism so get with it we've got to find this because it's clearly not acceptable to think that god created species intact that we we can't have that that's the basic direction of literally thousands of evolutionary books written to other evolutionists so uh, obviously, spontaneous generation isn't something that life came out of non-life somewhere, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there's a lot of unprovable tenets of evolutionary thinking. It's a faith system. So uh, we talked a little bit about why evolution destroys the message of the Bible. And uh, then last week, we did the same kind of thing with higher criticism, we looked at seven facts about the history and nature of higher criticism, and we noticed that it presupposes materialism, naturalism, anti-supernaturalism. Uh, the documentary hypothesis uh, kind of did away with, with believing the, the Old Testament was reliable or historical or the authoritative. Then the uh, 
the the Q theory and so forth of the synoptic gospels kind of did away with those things and, and all this kind of stuff all the way through. Paul didn't really write the letters that the early church thought he wrote uh, all the way due. So what it in in the end it yields a Bible that's a word of flux. It's it's uh, there's no absolutes. Uh, there's individual and cultural relativism. There's no fixed epistemology and uh, uh, any belief in inspiration or revelation of Scripture is, is, is just dismissed as impossible. All Scripture is given late dates of when it was composed because Daniel could, couldn't have pre- predicted the coming of the Medes, the Persians, and the Greeks accurately unless it was after Alexander. Um, and so forth. So, um, what it yields is is a Bible that people think is ahistorical, unreliable, and non-authoritative. And I've been studying this stuff for over forty years, and I really can't find any reason to uh, to think that higher criticism is anything except for unbelief masquerading as scholarship. So, all right, tonight we're going to move into, uh, I really only wanted to give two weeks to the modernist side because frankly most of modernism came out of those two ideas. But then fundamentalism became a reaction to modernism. But instead of going back and discovering what we call in this church the apostolic Christocentric hermeneutic and understanding how the defenders of the faith in the called the church fathers of the second and third century, defended the faith in a similar culture with similar worldview. We, uh, they invented all new ways of looking at scripture. And the, the result has been what was once Christendom has now become the most secularized culture in the history of, West, of the West. And that's primarily happened in about 160, 70 years. So, uh, once, once, what was once a fairly Christianized society, there was never a time when everyone was Christians or anything, but Christianity influenced a lot of institutions, a lot of political theory, a lot of economic theory, et cetera, et cetera. All of that is considered irrelevant in today's secular culture, and in fact, you must be stupid or inane to think it's, uh, to think it's actually got, has relevance. So tonight we're going to start looking at the conservative side of the equation. And we're going to look at, this week and next week, we're going to look at two concepts, pietism and dispensationalism. And very much like higher criticism and evolution, our fraternal twins, pietism is the father of dispensationalism. There's a definite relationship there. Dispensationalism grew out of pietism. So you can be a Christian who says, well, I don't care to know big words and study theology and church history and think about epistemology and metaphysics, but when you go to your Bible, those ideas are controlling what you're getting out of it. The presuppositions you're bringing to the page are determining what you see or don't see. So to bury your head in the sand and say, well, I don't want to know big words like dispensationalism or antinomianism or theonomy or, or uh, something like that uh, means that you actually are going to buy those ideas <laughs> uncritically. 
because the predominant evangelical culture is buying those ideas. And I think one of the thing, one of the fastest growing genres of books in evangelicalism, the fastest by far, is what the heck is wrong with evangelicalism and why is it falling apart and why is it collapsing and how has it become miles wide but only an inch deep? So, uh, more and more people are waking up to something that, that lots of people sounded the alarms in the, in the 50s and the 60s, but most people who, uh, of course I didn't start sounding that alarm until the 70s, but I'm, I'm not as old as you think. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, like people thought we were crazy. Now, they're all sounding the same alarm. Evangelicalism took some very wrong turns, and the first turn, wrong turn it took is called, is called pietism. So let's look at that tonight. So um, I've uh, given it a little longer title down toward the end of the page where I say escapist dualistic pietism. Hopefully you'll know what all those words mean by the time we're done tonight. Versus incarnational dominion. Uh, I would say incarnational, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Intervening or... Uh, I don't know, get, getting involved. So, um, let's maybe define those words real quick, uh, quickly. We would say that most, this, all pietism is escapist. Most pietists, the vast, vast majority of pietists wouldn't know what pietism is nor would they know it's escapist, nor do they intend to be escapist. But what it does is changes Christianity to dualism. Uh, dualism can also be called Neoplatonism. It can also be called Neo-Gnosticism. And so forth. Dualism is the idea that was prevalent in the Greek philosophy, especially of Plato and others of that time period, that the material realm is somehow inferior to the spiritual realm. Okay, so uh, Plato postulated that there were these forms and that there was this thing called the Lagos. And the Lagos was the eternal idea that was the perfection of ideas. And all ideas came out of that. But, so, but somehow things went wrong and they started getting incarnated in a material world and the material world was evil and nasty and so forth. That's a basic doctrine of both Neoplatonism and it's a basic doctrine of, um, of, Neo, of Gnosticism. So, uh, and, and other Gnostic spin-offs, like we're going we're gonna to look at a couple of those tonight. So... Uh, Protestants began to pick that idea up as a reaction against what they considered to be a cold, dead, liturgical orthodoxy in the more historically Protestant churches of the Reformed tradition, such as Lutheran, Anglican, Presbyterian, and, and uh, Swed Swedish Reformed, and Calvinistic, and so forth. So uh, it became kind of a let's call ourselves back to fervency um, by, uh, by calling people back to a valid thing. What, what happens, you'll see, is that all mis, all mis uh, turns are always wrong reactions or overreactions 
to other wrong things. And so the truth of the matter is, in the 18th century, uh, in the early 19th century, there was much cold, dead orthodoxy in a lot of liturgical traditions. And so the pietists developed various movements, such as Wesleyism, of course, uh, even older was the Anabaptist, uh, the latter part of the Reformation. And uh, the Baptist gave birth to our, the American Baptist movement and so forth. And the pietists basically were ch- ch- uh, big on having an individual conversion experience. Uh, we think that's very biblical and very important. However, in uh, the second thing they emphasized was the recapturing and, and repracticing historic, ancient, biblical, spiritual disciplines like uh, Bible study, fasting, getting alone with God, and so forth. We think that's okay. But the overreaction kind of began to turn it into uh, we're contemplating our inner life, we're, we're introspectionist, and we do what we do behind church walls in our prayer life and in our Christian communities and so forth, but we don't get involved with the nasty people outside. So we wouldn't do whiskets or anything like that. So let me, uh, let me just read this little essay that I just whipped out in like 20 minutes. And uh, uh, I did cut and paste a couple lines from... Uh, from some articles I was reading on a website that I listed toward the top of this article, but I guess you guys, do you have the article? Yeah, so there's a website that says calcedon.edu, and you can just search any subject on their website, and you can search pietism. Um, so let's, uh, let's define pietism by reading this essay. As we discuss the various humanistic hermeneutical paradigms that have become modern evangelicalism, so we're, we're asserting that modern evangelicalism is basically full of humanistic uh, ways to interpret the Bible when it thinks it's Bible-believing, but misinformed. As we discuss the various humanistic hermeneutical paradigms that, is, that has become modern evangelicalism and that have resulted in the reduced and comp- declining impact of Christianity in Western culture over uh, the rest of spring 2017, in other words, we're going to discuss them over the rest of spring 2017, please bear in mind the following. Seldom are these humanistic hermeneutical paradigms expressed in Christian churches in their purest, most unbiblical form. For example, very few Christians, typo there should add the word few, if any, are completely dispensationalists, at least not in its most extreme forms developed by J.N. Darby and popularized by C.I. Schofield from roughly 1890 to 1930. If you were a Baptist, a Church of Nazarene, Christian Missionary Alliance, uh, Assemblies of God, Church of God, either branch, etc., you would have had a a Schofield study Bible from 1890 all the way. They, They... Actually, some people still have them, <laughs> but, uh, but they kind of maybe began to diminish a little bit in influence in the 70s because in its extreme form, it's so unbiblical that it, eventually it, it became undefensible. So even most, almost no dispensationalists today are completely dispensationalist as Darby invented the system 
and then Schofield popularized the system. Does everyone get what I'm saying there? So, um, and of course, Darby and Schofield also uh, invent, you know, they came out of pietism and they invented dispensationalism out of pietism. So, therefore, uh, the student or someone in this class, you might benefit regularly by adding the uh, prefix neo to any of the isms we're going to be discussing. We're going to discuss a lot of isms the rest of the spring semester. And neo simply means near. So no one is perfectly pietistic. We're neo-pietist. No one is no one is a dispensationalist today except maybe Charles Ryrie, who's still alive at Dallas Theological Cemetery in, um, in, in Dallas, Texas. But, uh, and he's like 90-something, so. Um, but you won't, like, I, I know lots of professors at, the, at a very dispensationalist university here, near here called Cedarville University. I know lots of theology professors, and not a single one of them is a pure dispensationalist even though they're supposed to be to be on staff. <laughs> even though they signed to the fact that they are, none of them are. Because the system is, is really not workable and they actually read the Bible at the same time. Um, now, where were we? So pietism arose in the 17th through 19th century Protestantism as a partially biblical and correct reaction against what was considered the cold, complacent, and compromised nature of various expressions of Protestant orthodoxy. These included Lutheranism, Anglicanism, Presbyterian, etc. However, in the vast majority of cases, pietism, while calling Christians to an increase in scriptural and historical spiritual disciplines, in a more fervent love of God, did not call Christians to be more effective and fervent cult, in, to be more effective and fervent in their cultural engagement and mission. The love of God was turned into antinomianism, uh, antinomian introspection, and personal piety, often expressed in extra biblical legalism, rather than in an increase in cultural engagement and confrontation. So think on that a little bit. So it lost its missional value. And when, uh, when pietists have a mission, they reduce the mission to the sinner's prayer, or that is to soteriology. In other words, piet being a Christian has to do with praying a prayer to punch a ticket to heaven. And in fact, the message got saved from, got changed from being saved by our, from our innate spin, sin nature the kingdom of Satan and his demons, and the world's system into being restored into Christ-likeness and Christ's kingdom by the power of the cross and by the power of his resurrection and by the power of the present active Holy Spirit, it got changed into being saved from hell into heaven. There's no such biblical message, but that's the message of evangelicalism today, to be saved from going to hell so that you can punch a ticket to heaven. So maybe we should print tickets, but I don't, I don't know if God would honor them. The problem is, this may sound really crass. I'm sure it will, actually. And you might even start. I should have chicken wire up here in case Pete, like in the Blues Brothers, in case anybody starts throwing beers bottles after this comment. But because of our approach to Christianity and evangelicalism, when we, when we have people pray the sinner's prayer, we probably should just shoot them. So there would be no backsliding. <laughs> because we're not really saying making disciples who get their life uh, restored to them 
and get their inner pains healed and their bondages set free and they're made whole again and made how God intended them to be before the fall of man so that they can be a team player in his mission to liberate all of planet earth and rebuild it according to his glory. Uh, we're just waiting for heaven. I, I wonder, it, it's no wonder that that has also birthed the greatest unchurched church movement in the history of Christianity. There's never been a time where lots of people will say, I'm a Christian, I prayed the sinner's prayer, I'm going to heaven, I love Jesus, but I don't go to church and I don't even like the church. There's some good book out there why they love Jesus but hate the church. Uh, but, um, so pietism kind of gave birth to all that. Um, where was I? So pietism historically stressed the religion of the heart as an experiential, warm, affectional, and often sentimental view of the faith. Now, I'm actually all for the religion of the heart to a certain degree. Pietism spread to all Protestant churches, and it was and is the hallmark of the Anabaptists and the Wesleyans. If you don't know much about Anabaptism, I love Anabaptists because our, for 20 years I've done business with Anabaptists. Anabaptists are the Mennonites, the Huterites, uh, the Amish, and so forth. They came out of the Anabaptist movement started by Menno Simmons in the later part of the Reformation. And they are very escapist from the world. Now, that varies a lot. One of, the, one of the biggest divisions between the Amish and the Mennonites is the Mennonites tend to turn around and get involved in culture in the world, whereas uh, most Amish do not. But we've had Amish and Mennonite customers for 30 years and, and been in many an Amish and Mennonite home. And uh, often, because of the nature of their faith, they will have little revivals where it'll, you'll, you'll go to one Amish church and it's completely dead, formalist, legalism. Everybody's kind of sad, uh, unhappy, bitter, uh, judgmental and everything. And then you'll go to another place and God's moving afresh and everybody loves the Lord and it's in, uh, uh, so forth. Uh, one of the interesting uh, consequences of their approach versus the even, overall evangelical approach is today 45 to 70 percent of kids growing up in evangelical homes leave the faith and uh, about 85 percent of people growing up in Anabaptist home, homes stay with the faith even a very high percentage stay with the faith they grew up in although many Amish become Mennonites and so forth and of course there's what's called beachy Amish which is kind of halfway between Amish and Mennonites and uh, all great people to know. So, um, where was it? Though the early pietists were not against orthodoxy, that is, staying within the bounds of the creeds and biblical faith as such, their sentimental, disengaged, and man-centered view of Christianity laid the groundwork for 19th century Protestant liberalism and fundamentalism. By abandoning the world and rejecting the concept of capturing the culture for Christ, um, some friends of mine had were, had started and ran a very good Christian school in Tampa, Florida, and uh, they ran all kinds of great worldview classes where they showed all kinds of secular movies and discussed like what the worldview of it was and what the religion behind the movie was and so forth, and. Uh, 
a particular pietist group kind of ended up taking over the school. I won't say what denomination. But um, the principal of the school called my friend in and who ran this you know, cl class where he showed films and, and you were to analyze like what's the religion and worldview and the presuppositions behind this films. Very, very artsy good class. And he said, you know, Lou, I'm not going to carry your class this year, next year, because I'm not interested in saving the culture. I'm just interested in saving souls. That's pietism in a nutshell. So, um, the radically individualistic nature of pietism tends to contribute to the lack of a biblical ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is just a fancy word for a doctrine of what the church should be. What should its structure be? Why should it have a plurality of leadership? What should its mission be? What should uh, its liturgical life be? Etc., etc. What the, What should the church look like? Most Protestants, even who attend a church, have never given much thought to biblically what is the church, and certainly not to what historically has been the church. So, um, again, radically individualistic nature of pietism tends to contribute to the lack of a biblical ecclesiology in our day. Out of a vestige of biblical instincts, in other words, most Christians have some kind of instinct that we should be in a church, pietistic Christians still engage in the church, but seldom biblically study or define the Old and New Testament teachings on the nature, structure, lifestyle, culture, goals, and missions of God's kingdom community people called the church. By the way, in the Septuagint version, the Greek version uh, made shortly after Alexander conquered Palestine and moved a lot of Jewish scholars to Alexandria, Egypt, that Jesus and the disciples often quote from, as often as they quote from the Hebrew Masoretic text, the word for church is, ecclesi is ecclesia, and that every time you're reading in your English Bible, Moses' congregation or Moses' assembly, uh, it's that word ecclesia. And Jesus in Matthew 16, 18 is saying, I will build my ecclesia, He's saying that in contradistinction to Moses' ecclesia. I'm going to build a new kind of ecclesia, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And when, you know, many of you know that everything important in Matthew happened on a mountain. Jesus spoke that uh, at the mountain where the, where the worship called the gates of Hades was where Herod's temple also was, where the, in ancient times they worshipped the god Pan, uh, which is uh, Fawn, and I forget which one, Pan is Greek and Fawn is Latin. And, uh, you know, Fawn's in uh, Narnia, right? The, Narnia has a Fawn, right? And they, they had sex with goats, and they uh, did all kinds of pagan sacrifices there and so forth. And it was kind of the height of paganism, which the biblical view is that's hurting people. God's not just upset at it because he likes to be a killjoy. God's upset at it because it's destroying people's lives. So Jesus, the one time he took the disciples out of Israel, they went to Caesarea Philippi so he could say, who do people say that I am at the gates of Hades? And then when they said, Thou art the Christ. 
He said, I'm going to build my called-out assembly, my church, and the gates of Hades will not be able to hold out against it. We are going to go be a liberating people, whereas Israel got judged over and over and over again because they were supposed to be on a mission to take the law of God and its uh, more enlightened way of thinking and the, and the ways of God to the nations around them. And Israel always turned inward uh, into pietistic Phariseeism. And Israel hated the nations around them and were prejudiced against the nations. And if you read the prophets carefully, that's what the prophets are upset with Israel about over and over and over again. That's why they were sent into exile in a, in a variety of diasporas. 722 with the northern kingdom conquered by the Assyrians. 597 and 587 with the southern kingdom conquered by the Babylonians. 333 to 335, somewhere in there, with Alexander the Great and so forth, and about 160 AD with the Romans. And they, each time more Jews were dispersed uh, from Israel and scattered in the nations, as Moses had predicted in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, as God's judgment upon Israel because they were ignoring the nations around them. Everybody in modern time, because we're materialists, and so we assume that God's mad at us about our materialism, which he probably is. But because we're that, we assume that Jesus is mad at the money changers because they're selling in the temple. He's mad at them because they're selling in the court of the Gentiles because they saw no purpose for the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles was where they were supposed to be bringing the Gentiles into the true faith of Israel and turn them into worshipers of the true God. And they had, it was such, such a useless place for them that they had set up their tables to sell there. That's why Jesus was ticked. I'll use a Christian word. Instead of, instead of a Old Testament word. Uh, instead of a biblical word. Um, pietism. All right, so, um, so where was I? Out of the vestiges of biblical instincts, pietistic Christians still engage in the church, but seldom biblically study or define the Old and New Testament teachings on the nature, structure, lifestyle, culture, goals, and mission of the king, God's kingdom, community, people, the church. In other words, a big part of what Grace Christian Fellowship's been about uh, is we started, we set out in the late 60s and the early 70s to study what is the church as compared to what is the church in modern times. And to rethink every aspect of its leadership, its lifestyle, its mission, and so forth, so that there, things wouldn't be just kind of nebulous. Because that eventually destroys churches. Many an on-fire and thriving church for a season loses its way because it never brings any ecclesiology to its task. Indeed, the kingdom of God is relegated to individual holiness and the next life. All right, pietism refers to the schmaltzy, privatized, escapist, and hyper-spiritualized Christianity, which sees the faith almost exclusively in terms of an individualized emotional and spiritual experience. And I'm all for individualized emotional and spiritual experiences. As you know, we always teach that all biblical truths are truths in tension. 
So if community is emphasized to the point where you're not empowering and setting free individuals, that's wrong. If individuality is, is stressed to the point where you're not subordinating yourself to a family and a community and a way of life together, that's wrong. All biblical truth is always truth held in attention that only the grace of God and the Holy Spirit and an ongoing day by day can help you find the balance of that tension. You're never, you're never at it. You're always having God help you with it. So, Again, um, although perhaps at times an unintentional consequence, pietism in effect denies the word of God, it denies that the word of God makes claims on all areas of life and society. So what does the word of God have to do with reading programs in the school? The truth is, is that phonics reading programs work better than uh, look-say reading programs. The truth is, Reading programs where kids actually have individualized attention and people actually love them work better than when nobody loves them and gives them individualized attention and one teacher is trying to teach 25 kids from broken homes. Is that a non-Christian thing to engage in? I don't think so. So, I, I uh, of course, set up the whole WizKids program and, and all that and I didn't ever volunteer in it but I did volunteer in our kindergarten reading program and I came away crying so many times because I knew that I was the only adult who ever sat down and spent any time with that kid and there were so many kids who were so troubled already at the age of five that it was pretty scary and pretty sad and it took me back to my days of coaching inner city baseball for five, six, seven, and eight-year-olds, which is how we got started on this whole inner city deal. Um, pietism, in effect, denies that the Word of God makes claims on all areas of life and society. This includes a lack of an urgency to discover, recapture, and rebuild according to biblical law and blueprints for each of the seven inevitable government institutions of all society. So a basic biblical idea is that every society in the history of the world has had self-government. And according to the Bible, the Bible says you are held captive by Satan to do his will. When you're born again, and as you are sanctified and mature in the Christian life, you're empowered for more self-government. When I teach my classes at Sinclair, I always say, if your mommy didn't help you get here today, then you're probably starting to exercise self-government, right? So, so uh, even unbelievers can have some kinds of self-government, but not in relation to the love of God. So, uh, family, church, educational institutions. If you don't think secular societies have churches, look at Hitler's Nazi youth, youth camp groups and stuff. The communists had churches. They're secular churches, but they had very devoted churches with much better catechism programs than we have in our churches today. So uh, church, educational institutions, vocational callings and economic systems. If you don't understand what I mean, read George Gilder's Wealth and Poverty or anybody like that, or go back a little further and read the historian Max Weber and his book called The Protestant Work Ethic where he basically demonstrates 
that what made Western culture prosperous was the Protestant Reformation in its work ethic and its emphasis that every vocation was as holy as being a pastor or a minister. That if you're called to print books or, or uh, put roofs on or make shoes, you do that with all your heart and mind to the glory of God. And that's what caused Western culture to become prosperous. So, um, media and social mores. You know, every person here is probably taking some consideration into how other people dress. Uh, and that's helped deci- you decide how you're dressing. Uh, thankfully, we have no naked people here. <laughs> um, you know, but it's amazing how many times we wear our hat backwards because everyone wears their hat backwards and that's cool, right? <laughs> or whatever. You know, no, you, you can wear your hat backwards. Um, I, I'm just jealous that you actually, if I had hair though, I wouldn't cover mine. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't wear a hat if I had, a, had any hair. But uh, I remember hair a long, long time ago. <laughs> uh and meet, and then finally, civil government. Today, you know, in my classes, I always ask people, well, what are the limitations on civil government? And they always say, uh, that, that were designed in the U.S. Constitution. I'll say, in the, you know, when the Constitution was first written, uh, we had a, a government with checks and balances. What are the checks and balances? And if most of them don't know any of the answers... Of course, I teach at Sinclair Community College, not Harvard. But uh, <laughs> and uh, then they say, um, if some the ones who know think they know, say, well, there's the executive branch, the uh, legislative branch, and the judiciary. But none of them know that the Constitution was supposed to be lit- written limited by a written document and whatever was not specifically granted to the national federal government was to be retained by the states and the people. And that there was supposed to be an, uh, uh, a war uh, for, for authority between the states and the people as much as there is between the president and the Congress. The states and the people trying to limit the power of the federal government instead of in modern society where we now think the federal government should save us from all problems. Let's just vote for me and I'll set you free. Uh, <laughs> that's from the 60s, by the way. <laughs> it's a bo- song called Ball of Confusion. That was uh, back when we were all like smoking weed and protesting the war and stuff uh us all us old people um so pietism tends to cause individuals and churches to turn inward content with the warmth and fellowship of those with whom we already feel comfortable pietistic christians and churches gradually become less evangelistic less engaged in social justice concerns and less effective in outreach Pietism renders us less likely to connect with and effectively disciple worldly converts because we no longer know how to relate to worldly people. Now, we'll get into the rest of this. Um, I want to just give some thought to whether I want to jump ahead Somebody help me see, does, is there a place where I say, put in brackets or somewhere to tell Catherine some of my story? Because I'm trying to debate whether to tell her right now or stay, stay there. 
<laughs> Does it say that anywhere? On the back page of the outline? Well, remind me, Deanna, to tell it at least by um, point seven of, of G back there. All right, so let's keep going. So that's uh, point... 7a on the front of your outline point 7b pietism was and is the single most important re reason that christendom has been succeeded by secularism it gave birth to the most secular culture in the history of western culture pietism was the and by the way uh, just thinking a little bit about pietism here and there is not gonna do it like you really kind of need to eventually understand the history of this and and how much it actually has influenced us. We are, I, I came to Christ, I was raised Roman Catholic, I became an atheist, and uh, spent seven or eight years as an atheist, and uh, when I became a Christian, I was at first an evangelical Christian, but I was studying a lot of Bible, so I, in the very first few months, I began to have some questions about well this a lot of this doesn't actually seem to match with the bible and i started a journey basically saying uh you know how can we find a really biblical christianity and there's a lot of elements that went into that one of the things i discovered very i, I was always a history buff so i one of the things i discovered is that almost all renewal movements discover one truth and build their renewal movement around one truth and then if we're actually going to restore biblical Christianity, we need to, to look at a, a, a variety of major emphasis. And if, and if we really get biblical Christianity, we'll be able to know for two reasons. One, it'll be healthy for our members. And two, it will uh, be hel helping people outside the church uh, engage and encounter Christ and Christianity. So, um, next statement we've already talked about. Pietism was the father of or progenitor of dispensationalism. However, pietism is not always dispensational. So there are Reformed Pietist churches that are not dispensational, but they, the Reformed Pietist church tend to reduce uh, uh, God's mission to soteriology or salvation experiences. Um, Next, pietism bequeathed many modern evangelical paradigms. In other words, we're gonna the rest of this semester, we're, we're gonna look next week at dispensationalism, and the rest of this semester is we're gonna look at various um, evangelical ways of looking at scriptures that have spun out of pietism and dispensationalism, such as antinomianism uh, and so forth. Uh, what pre, what's called dispensational premillennialism and all kind of things like that. All right, flipping over. Pietism has had some historically beneficial emphasis. However, the devil is in the emphasis and the missing elements of the emphasis. So number one, pietism has been, always had a call to biblical and historical spiritual disciplines, which are good. You know, a Christianity where people don't know their Bibles and don't know the Lord because they don't know how to encounter him daily in the privacy of their study or whatever uh, is ineffective. Um, 
But if all we do is what we do in terms of our worship, our prayer, our fasting, and, and what's a discipline called solitude, and what we do be together behind church walls and individually in our studies or whatever, then we become irrelevant to the world around us. Who needs us? Because as I like to say, and I hope you someday feel this with the passion I feel, I can hardly say this without crying. There's no one else coming. If you're not gripped by a responsibility to see the church completely restored and you're willing to abandon all past friendships, all past priorities, all everything to see God's church rise up and do what it was supposed to do, become a liberating force in cultures, then I don't think you've really seen Christ yet. That doesn't mean I'm condemning you for not seeing Christ. I'm hoping you'll see the fullness of Christ more because Christ always works through his church. So that was a good thing, a call to biblical and historical spiritual disciplines as such. Pietism tends to confront complacency, compromise, mediocrity, and nominalism. Nominalism meaning Christianity in name only, but not in substance. And interestingly, a lot of pietistic churches, at least in their early years, are pretty fervent. It's just that, as you, you know, like there's actually a doctrine out there that all movements will eventually become a monument because pietism can't sustain itself more than a generation or so. We, what we desperately need to build is something that will be gathering momentum a generation or two after we're dead and gone. If the vision we have can be done in our own lifetime, then it's much too small. Thirdly, point, pietism point outs that form without, without substance is dead. In the Old Testament, there's a, a phrase called worthless that's actually uh, literally the sons of Baal or the sons of Belial. Um, you know, a, a, a religion that has the right liturgies and so forth and the right buildings and the right Lord's Day services or something, but it has no engagement with the world around it in a effective life-changing ways is is useless. Hum, hum, hum. We're kind of late, so I'd like to read Colossians 2, but I think I'm not going to. Boy, that's tempting. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 ends with uh, men who hold to a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. Um, it's a shorter verse. I could probably get into that easier. James 2, 8 through 26 is pretty. James 2, 8 through 26 is about how faith without works is dead. You know, sadly, even Luther said that the, gospel, that the epistle of James was a right strawly epistle. And there have been many pietists uh, throughout church history that have had negative views of, the, of James's epistle. But James's epistle is a perfect complement to Paul's thinking. And uh, he, he's not denying justification by faith. He's making the point that real faith has real works that follows. Um, 
in the second timothy passage i'll just say that it talks about all kinds of evils that people always go see this proves we're in the end times the end times in the bible started at pentecost and uh, it says that men will be lovers of self, boaster, lovers of money. It, it really describes our culture quite well, actually. It's a whole list of things that you'll go, that's us. <laughs> we be that. And, uh, uh, <laughs> and, uh, that but that actually, hap- what people do is they just read, you know, we need reading comprehension skills. It says, it ends by saying, men who hold to a form of godliness and deny the power thereof. Those characteristics become very predominant in a society where the Christianity in the society holds to forms of godliness but doesn't really have the power and it's not challenging or liberating the society. Does that make sense? That's the actual context of the passage. Because some societies get more like that. Some societies, there have been times where whole cultures have become more Christianized. And there have been times when whole cultures got more ungodly. That's always on who the church is in its day. And it's not a sign of the end times that things are falling apart and that this is inevitable and this, as Christians, is what we should be hoping for and working for. So when things go really bad and... You know, one-third of kids are sexually molested in their homes, and one-third of kids are beaten up in their homes, and, and you know, kids can't read when they graduate high school, and, and, you know, the welfare state is spinning out of control and so forth. We, boy, praise God, we told you this bad stuff was coming. No, that's because the church has become ineffective. And if you think I'm crazy, go back and study history. Because there are many, many times when the church has changed entire cultures for the good. So, but you have to have the right vision of what you're about and where you're going and what you're doing to do that. And you have to have the right levels of commitment and you have to do it as a community. You know, you can't do it with the, you know, the modern megachurch uh, celebrity pastor and, and uh, TV Christianity and circus shide shows. Uh, where was I? So, other, uh, yeah, I don't know, should we go to Colossians 2? <laughs> Well, read it on your own. It'll help you understand pietism. Because we're, I mean, I don't want to be past 9 o'clock. I'll be lucky if I get done with all this by 9 o'clock. Other factors about the historical development and impact of pietism. One is most errors, misguided or unbalanced, or unbalanced emphasis. And, you know, biblical, like a heresy or a faction or whatever is often a misguided or unbalanced emphasis is what I'm saying. And it usually comes out of a sincere reaction to other misguided emphasis. But it doesn't hold into account things like divine tensions. The whole Bible is full of divine tensions, starting with the Trinity. There are three persons and there are one being. If that's not complicated, I don't know what is. Our Lord Jesus Christ is 100% human, 100% God. He was God from all eternity. He was eternally begotten, (laughs) so there was never a time when he was not begotten. 
Yet the two natures are combined in one person in such a way that there's no confusion of the natures, uh, but uh, they remain intact, but they're completely united in only one personality in one person. The Bible was written by the Holy Spirit, working through 40 different men on three continents over 2,000 years, and it wasn't just dictation. He created them in historical time and circumstances. He worked with their life and sanctified them to a particular level where he could actually eventually breathe on them and write an infallible word through them. And now if that's not holding some ideas in tension, I don't know what is. And so, you know, the truth of the matter is, is that when you read English translations and you read the word for soma is flesh, uh, and that's part of the problem, is that he's not talking about the material world is bad and the spiritual world is good. However, he's borrowing Greek concepts, and he, and they're, but they're putting Hebrew meaning in them, and when, in the, when God did, got done creating the whole world, behold, it was very good. And the mission of God's people has always been to restore the whole world to where it's all very good. Economic systems and so forth. For instance, in all unbiblical economic systems, if you have more pie, then I have to have less pie. In all biblical economic systems, it, we can create more pie and we can empower you to create pies. And I love pie. That's the, my favorite part of pietism. <laughs> <laughs> I'm known for my bad jokes if anyone's new. Uh, are we having any pie afterwards? Even pizza pie would be all right. But uh, <laughs> cherry pie, I'm, I'm, I'm game. All right, let's move on. Um, so divine tensions is really a very, very big idea. And, and as it relates to this, God wants you to have a deep, rich, warm, relationship with him and he wants that relationship shared in a community of christians that you have a deep long-standing commitment with that most people really don't mature in christ till they stay in one healthy church for three four five six seven years and that's when they really start to get healthy and well educated and so forth if the church is good but on top of that no mission is effective if it's, uh, you know, like the superstar TV guy. You know, it has to do with average people working together to roll up their sleeves and, and do this or that. Uh, second idea I want to throw out is pendulums. We all are subject to this. When we see some misemphasis in our life, we sometimes tend to overreact. Try to find some balance. In Jesus' parable of the wheat and tares, most people interpret it as having to do with heaven and that when, people, that when we go to heaven, he'll separate the wheat from the tares. But it has to do with the kingdom now. And so... When, when you know the, if you study anything about businesses and churches, every church er, had the seeds of its own destruction are sowed at the beginning, 
And as it matures, it becomes obvious which are wheat and which are tares. Those organizations, both in business and in family and in churches, who go on to be effective are the people who, when the wheat and the tares get, begin to be obvious, wait till they have enough perspective and then deal thoroughly and effectively with the tares while retaining the wheat and sowing a new crop of wheat and so forth. I've seen churches that every time they begin to realize that this emphasis we had for 5 or 10 or 15 years is, has headed the wrong way, then it's like we throw out everything we've ever believed as if we... So the thing that I get crazy about is like, well, you were so confident God was showing you these things. So do you, are you now saying you didn't know the Lord at all? No, you just didn't have full balance. You had, you had some things going on, but you could have used some perspective and so forth. And of, sometimes it's not until the tears become evident that you can see them. And I've been through that process a few times myself. It's one of the reasons the Bible talks about how elders cannot be new converts and so forth because once you've gone through that process three or four times, you start to get some more perspective. Not that we ever have a great deal of perspective in this life. We haven't been here long enough. So we always need to seek God. Um, zebra principle is probably silly, but my point is this. No lie is usually just a bold-faced lie. You know, zebras have black and white stripes, so you can call the black good or the white good. I don't care which, you know, uh, we, have, we have black people and white people, so maybe the black people are good and the white people are bad. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever, but no lie is just a lie. Right? It's always a mixture. And the process that we have to go through is, is not losing the good when we get rid of the mixture. So there are some good things in pietism. I hope you spend a lot of time in your individual private pursuit of God, in your study, reading your Bible, uh, worshiping, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I hope you discover the old-fashioned discipline called solitude. Solitude is when you get someplace where there's no electronics and there's no noise and you can sit long enough till your spirit gets really quiet. Sometimes it, it's best done in the woods or you know places like that and sometimes it takes hours and because we have this very busy anxious kind of modern world but eventually you'll be able to think more sanely and hear god better so i'm all for that part of pietism but you have to ask is the reaction or new emphasis fully scripture scriptural is it missing its corresponding divine tensions i'm about uh this far down on the second page. Point F. Uh, does it give proper place to the incarnation principle? So hopefully we all know what the incarnation principle is by now, but I remember some, some guys that are on our leadership team were graduates of Cedarville College and they had Bible degrees and when we first started talking about the incarnation, they didn't actually know what that meant. And so I was a little surprised, but um, the incarnation principle is simply this, that God became a man. So both in creation, God, when he got done making it, said it's very good. And God endorsed humanity and flesh and the world in art and music and all of that by becoming a man with a physical body. That was abhorrent to the Greek Neoplatonist and to the Gnostics. That means he got hungry 
And he probably smelled bad sometimes when they were walking from Jericho to Bethel or somewhere. And uh, they skipped uh, stones across the, the river and he, one of the disciples probably hit him with one. <laughs> and he didn't uh, use his cosmic ray gun to disintegrate the guy <laughs> or, or anything. Um, the incarnation principle, God left the perfection. Father, Son, Holy Spirit are eternally coexistent in a perfect fellowship that we could never imagine. When it says don't grieve the Holy Spirit, the closest we can get is, you know, my I've lost two brothers, I've lost some various people, my closest little brother, but I know a little bit about grief, but I don't know much about grief compared to what, what Father, Son, and Holy Spirit knew in that cosmic moment when he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I can't even begin to understand the depth of that. They had perfect, perfect fellowship in a realm that was outside and above time where there were no limitations. You know that we would have problems in our relationship even if we didn't have a sin nature because of our finiteness? Because I would still, when Jeff is talking about some biblical idea over our freshest salads, say, no, what do you exactly mean by that? Because I'm very limited in my understanding. And I'm not sure if I'm understanding the word how he means the word. Right? So the Father and Son and the Spirit had no such limitations. Yet the Son left all that to come and get involved with us. So, you know what drives me more nuts than anything else is after like a good worship meeting or something, when I see a bunch of people who've been in the same fellowship for six months to six years talking to the people they already know instead of the people who they don't know and who aren't there. When I see the people sit at tables with people at, at the dinners, you know, we have a dinner every Friday night and every Sunday on purpose is just one step in community building Sit with somebody you never sat with before. Who's from a different country, a different culture, a different color, a different education level, a different age group, and a different socioeconomic status. And ask them about their life. So, um, that's what the incarnational principle means. Are we, are we really effective at relationships with all kinds of different people. Uh, does the idea negate the Old Testament in the sense that we don't see the Old Testament as that important anymore? That's rampant in our culture. Does it re resurrect any ancient heresies? We're going to talk about a few if we have enough time. Is it dualistic, neo-gnostic, or neoplatonic? You know what that means now. That is, holding up the spiritual is actually inevitably more good, uh, righteous, benevolent than the physical. Guess what? When God made the husband and wife, he made them married, naked and unashamed, and he said it was very good. Up until that day, he had just said it was good. <laughs> right? So... I always say that at weddings. Um, not always, but sometimes. Um, is it withdrawing from the world in fear, or is it an effective strategy of Christian infiltration and conquest? 
there's a place to have private family meetings. You know, my when we first were starting this church, we went to our children who, you know, as you know, two of them are now the elders in this church and so forth, but um, they were 16 and 14 at the time, not 30-something. And we said, we're your mother. We said, your mother and I have been coaching this inner city baseball team for four years. And it's broken my heart so much that I have to sit in the back at church every Sunday because I'm always crying. And I've started to read all kinds of books about the permanent culture of poverty and to consider what a church could do about that instead of just clothing and food, lifting people out of the culture and lifestyle of poverty. And I said, we're thinking about starting this little inner city church and it's going to be the hardest thing we've ever done because we had started churches that I'm ashamed to say before, several, that were yuppie churches. We started on college campuses every time and we became upwardly mobile people who were engineers, doctors, and successful businessmen. And we had up to 14 weddings a summer and we and the tithe base kept growing bigger and bigger and lots of the businesses, you know, like the Christian Blue Pages is still around when we started that. So forth. Um, the, you know, the businesses in Bowling Green that we started uh, employing way more people than the church has members. So, you know, we said to our kids, if we do this, we're going to spend your college fund and our retirement fund. That's how we're going to finance this thing. And uh, we didn't even take a collection for over five years. So our kids all bought in. And they said, let's do this. And we, we, so we had private meetings just with our family every Sunday night to worship and talk about what to do because we had never done anything like this before. And our teenage kids, and then eventually Carla's boyfriend named Jason, who you all know, I guess they've been married over eight years now, uh, you know, started attending that Sunday night meetings and, and, you know, it's, it's okay to have like a huddle, you might say. You know, we have times in, where we just meet and worship as a community, where we have discipleship meetings, where we're not inviting everyone. But it's always to equip you for more effective service outside. And if it's not for that, there's a problem. And if, it's, if you don't see yourself as becoming effective at serving people and leading them to Christ and discipling them and so forth, that's a problem. All Christians have three missions, one to God, one to the body of Christ, and one to those outside of Christ. And Jesus said, by this my Father's glorified, if you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The, the quality test of whether we're actually disciples is if we're bearing quantity and quality of good fruit over time. It's John 15, 8, if you want to memorize it. All right, so let's keep moving. Got a half an hour. Um, second thing I want to say is to identify real problems is not necessarily to offer appropriate s solutions. Hear that. Because many, it's easier to see problems than it is to actually come up with effective solutions. 
every teenager goes through a, hopefully, goes through a social justice phase where they're all upset at how terrible everything is and everyone and so forth. And, uh, and you need to do that. I hope you got really mad and, uh, and you were going to vote or bomb something or, <laughs> or do something about it. <laughs> you know. <laughs> when, I, when I was ninth grade, I ran for student council. Then I went to one meeting after I got elected, and they voted on whether the football team should vote for the homecoming queen or the whole senior class. And I, and I said, weren't we going to vote on like, whether to bomb the administration building or not? <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I never, went, I never went back to student council because I figured it was probably lame. But... Uh, um, and we did have a very effective walkout and so forth, just because we we're angry teenagers with too much time on our hands. But, uh, <laughs> so, moving on. G, pietism has some biblically and historically disastrous consequences. That's what we really want to think about here. Number one, personal savior and personal piety has increased radical in individualism in American culture, which was already bent toward radical individualism. Pull your, you know, pull yourself by, by the bootstraps. Go west, young man. All that, um, and therefore, it's marginalized the church. The church is something we get something from. That we're consumers. Oh, this is my. There's lots of people who have three or four churches. This is my good worship church. I go here because they really worship good. I go here because they have teaching here. I go here because they have really good food <laughs> and it's free. And uh, <laughs> and uh, I was just told today that's uh, in, in a meeting that there's someone who comes to our church regularly who doesn't stay for the Sunday dinners because our food's not good enough. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, you know, I, I I don't like the food either, but I like you. <laughs> Don't tell Carla I don't like the food. I like the food. But is that really the reason you're staying? Because the food is good or not good? Are you kidding me? It's not poison. All right. Uh, sanctification, being set, growing in Christ, being set apart to God, becomes antinomianism. That, that means it's... It's a divorce from biblical law, and therefore, when it's, we're made in the image of God and we're creatures of law, if you take away God's law, you will substitute your own. And then it becomes about like your hairstyles and makeup and don't drink beer and don't smoke cigars and uh, don't drive too fast, which is probably a pretty good idea most of the time, <laughs> especially for you, Daniel. <laughs> Daniel and I are starting a school of driving, <laughs> but you, you, you have you you have you have twelve more accidents to catch up to me. <laughs> I had fourteen; you only had two. So <laughs> you're young yet, though. Yeah. What's well, cause and effect? You're supposed to be like that's because I'm discipling you. <laughs> so. Um, you never, you haven't discovered true joy until you drive down the wrong way on a one-way street in the city, and then Stephen tells you you're going the wrong way, and you go, "I'm only going one way." <laughs> All right. I, I like to go against the grain. All right. 
it's totally accidental. I'm not endorsing it, but I have done it. Um, sanctification becomes antinomian. Then what happens is it becomes subjective and extra biblical. And it can go one or two directions. It can become license. The Bible talks about turning the grace of God into licentiousness. So like, well, anything goes. I'm, I'm a good Christian and I've gone to church. Like, I go to church at least like 20 times a year. And, you know, and... You know, I give sometimes if, if I don't need the money for milkshakes afterwards. And, you know, whatever. <laughs> whatever, you know, like you, you can just, anything goes. Like, uh, you know, they say in, in evangelical Christianity today that not only do 85% of, of millennials live together before they're married, 65% think it's biblically okay. So, the problem is if you ever saw the divorce rates among people who lived together before they got married versus people who waited for marriage, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty high. About it. You're about 85% more likely to get divorced if you live together before you're married. And there's reasons for that that, I, that have to do with biblical law. If, if a covenant wasn't important to you before the wedding, why will it be important to you after the wedding when you have extra covenantal temptations? Sanctification became the individual's inner life and thus irrelevant to mission and dominion. Now, by the way, the biblical idea of dominion is a servant leadership, not like a conquering in this sense, but a conquering in the sense of Jesus empowering. Dualistic, neo-gnostic, and neoplatonic versus creationist. That is redeeming the creation. Um, it has its roots in ancient Gnosticism, Marcionism. Let's talk a little bit about Marcion. Marcion was a heretic in the 3rd century and early in 4th century who basically uh, developed the idea that the Old Testament God was bad and evil and the New Testament God was good. Sound familiar? That idea is rampant in evangelical Christianity today. And therefore, Marcion only accepted 14 books of the Bible. He mostly only liked Paul's books. But he was a type of Gnostic. And there were two types of Gnostics. There were those who said, because the body is evil, then let's just have orgies and get drunk and have sex because the body doesn't matter. And then there were others who were extremely ascetic. Let's abuse our bodies and fast forever and whip ourselves into shape and and so forth, but neither of those is a biblical view of how to steward your, your body. Next, personal piety tends towards morbid introspectionism with, with a built-in dual conflict. You're both condemning and critical or judgmental spirit. Now that's important, so let's try to say that, what that means. Because this will help you if you encounter it in yourself, and it will help you help other people if you know how to help them through this. Some people are too introspective. I believe you should be introspective occasionally when you're reading God's word and so forth because the Bible clearly says the word of God is like a mirror that reads us. And that the, the word of God is like, that's James 1, 21 through 25. Hebrews 4, 12, the word of God is like a sword that judges the thoughts and intentions of our heart. There's a place for some introspection. You, we all know bold type of people who 
aren't introspecting at all, and uh, that's a that's a problem. On the other hand, some people are just paralyzed by introspection. What I do is spend a little bit of time in the Word, and I'm introspective a little bit. Then I have a lot of people in my life who are who are invited to and very good at confronting me about a lot of things because my type of personality needs a lot of people confronting me. Deanna Brown is very good at confronting me. Stop that, Deanna. All right. Uh, and, uh, and my wife's even better and so forth. And then there's Jason. It, it's a rat race. Uh, <laughs> so you need, you know, like it, the, the more... Uh, aggressive or an outgoing your personality, the more you need to surround yourself with people who are who can do that and who are wise enough and, and courageous enough to do that. I don't value everybody's opinion the same. I listen to every opinion, but some people have a kind of a proven track record that, ooh, if they're saying that, I better be humble. So at that point, I always get a little introspective. But I don't get very introspective very often in, throughout the day. Because I'm mostly thinking about everyone else I'm engaging. And I'm discerning their spirit and how can I help them. And I think it's very paralyzing to be too introspective too often. And that's part of the problem with pietism. Hey, Stephen, can I get another bottle of water? Is there any cold water or anything? Oh, okay, thanks. What do you know? You're the greatest. Thank you. It's hot in here. I'm sweating. Okay. Um, does everyone get that? Now, what happens once you get introspective is this. On the one hand, you'll always be struggling with condemnation. When it gets really out of control, uh, psychologists call it obsessive-compulsive disorder. And it can be really harmful. And it's kind of interesting that people who, sometimes you'll meet people that are really condemned about everything, and they've never even done anything wrong. <laughs> it's like, you know, like in the second scene of that Luther movie, when Luther is all condemned about how terrible he is, and his pastor goes, Martin, I've been your, what they call a confessor, like a confessor is an ancient Christian idea where you tell your sins to someone more mature regularly so you can be prayed for and get some help and counsel. And he said, I've been your confessions for years, and you've never even confessed anything remotely interesting. <laughs> you know, and uh, I love that line. <laughs> And uh, and I really I've had some of the people that I felt like that have struggled with the most condemnation. They've never been drunk. They've never done drugs. They've never looked at porn. They never stole anything. They you know they got to be in th fourth grade, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and it's like you know like and but they're like riddled with condemnation. Introspection is not that good of a thing, especially if it leads to condemnation. Whenever that happens, you will also have a critical spirit toward others. And Christians are kind of known for that. That's why a lot of people struggling in a lot of crazy lifestyles don't like Christians, because they think you're going to, like if they tell you I'm struggling with being a chainsaw murderer, you're going to go, oh, you know. <laughs> and I'm just going to go, well, I haven't murdered anyone in over two weeks. <laughs> no, <laughs> just kidding. But uh, <laughs> except in my heart occasionally. But um, as Jesus says, you're guilty if you did it in your heart. Um, you know, 
the problem is, is you won't have grace toward other people. And you know what? We're all fallen human beings. We all are a mess. That's a really big problem. If you have this thing where you're self-condemned and you're also holier than thou to everybody. And you have to ask God to help you with it and go on a journey. That's probably a good place to tell my wife and my story. You know, when we started doing this inner city baseball team, um, you know, we had one broken life after another and, and, and so forth. And some of you know some of the stories. But, you know, we had grown up in the suburbs, in a very ritzy suburb. Her dad was a PhD from Harvard. You know, we, you know, we came from a f- families that everyone is going to college, and everyone. And if you just only get a master's degree, you're probably an idiot, kind of thing. And uh, we, you know, so at times when we were when we'd help people who were drunks and smelled bad, and uh, you know, we we had God brought lots of people who smelled bad here. I can remember one particular guy who's actually still a member of our church and you wouldn't even know he was like this years ago. He was not only the worst case of obsessive compulsive disorder I'd ever worked with, he smelled bad from 30 or 40 feet. And everybody in the church, of course, think we had only about 12 people back then, they would say, when are you going to say something about how bad he smells? I said, I don't know, not just yet. <laughs> I said, deal with it. Because... <laughs> Because he's really, his spirit is crushed, and I'm not going to crush it anymore. So he smelled bad for quite a few months, and one day, when he was a lot more confident and doing, starting on the right path, and I had him read some books about obsessive compulsive disorder, and you know, because my my view is to empower people to be their own best counselor and doctor. He said, "Do I smell really bad?" And then I said, "Yeah, you really do." And then his first solution was just to carry around like deodorant all the time and spray himself. <laughs> and eventually I taught him about like showers and laundry. Can you help people like that without feeling like th- that I'm better? Because I'm not better. I'm not at all better. In fact, I'm worse. You know, you know why I'm worse? Because God's been very gracious to me and, and shown me a lot about himself and his kingdom and I've been a pretty lousy Christian in return. That's why I'm worse. Because, you know, a lot of it gets down to how faithful are you with what God entrusted to you. And I'm not setting any records there. And I hope you're deep enough to say, see that you're probably not either. Does everybody get that? That's really important. Um... Boy, we're, I don't know if I want to go to... Yeah, I do want to get into this. Uh, where were we? All right, number five. Pietism kills evangelism and discipleship in two ways. It turns the church inward, but it reduces graciousness and it reduces your ability to know how to connect with people that are struggling. I might get my friend Buddy from Bowling Green to come down sometimes. Buddy you know, came to Christ through our organization in this in the... 1982, and he was vice president of the gay union at Bowling Green State University. And after he had gotten in an accident and gone to the hospital, 
I felt bad because I didn't get to see him for three or four days. And when I, when, by the time I got to the hospital, I was the 30th person from our fellowship that had gone to see him, and none of his friends from the world had gone to see him at all. And we cried together. And he was so thankful that all the guys in our, he had, you know, a guy in our church started witnessing to him. He became friends with us. We were good friends for a long time. And uh, he became a Christian that day. Pietism leads to mistakes of novationism and donatism. Now that's, for those of us in our church history class, <laughs> that won't mean a lot to a lot of people. But they were, this was a mistake in the early church. In the early church, there were waves of persecution that lasted from 64 AD to 313 AD. The worst ones were toward the end. And toward the end, during the time of an emperor named Diocletian, the persecution and the torture was so intense that many Christians backed down in the face of torture and turned over scriptures, which was considered a big sin in the uh, early church, and sacrificed to the emperor rather than be killed by the lions and the gladiators and burned on poles, with, you know, like because they would dip them in tar and light them on a pole and all kinds of ways of torturing the Christians. And um, after the persecutions were over and Constantine legalized Christianity, there became a theological problem called the problem of what to do with the lapsed. So those people who had backed down, who basically said, I still want to be a Christian, I'm sorry. And neither the Novatians nor the Donatists were willing to let them into the church. Because the church has to be, in their view, uh, a, an organization for saints, not for sinners. That's why studying history is important. Because guess who are guess who are the two greatest apostles of our faith? A murderer and a guy who denied Christ three times when the heat was on. And guess who wrote the Gospel of Mark? A guy who chickened out in the Garden of Gethsemane and fled for his life. And later, on Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey, he chickened out again and went back to Antioch. And later, he was so restored that Paul says to receive him when he comes, and Peter commissioned him to write Peter's gospel. Mark is Peter's gospel. Just before Peter was executed by Nero. So... Um, the problem with pietism is you have this kind of, you know, the church is only for saints, not for sinners. And I'm glad we have a church where we have like people who are really on fire and mature Christians and know a lot and so forth. And we have drug addicts and, uh, you know, every week I have a talk with a certain young man who's you know, struggling to quit drugs about how long it took me to quit drugs when I became a Christian. And I said, don't worry, God will help you. And you're welcome here while you're fighting through this. Because he knows down in his heart that he'll be better off once he's free from them. So, if we can't have a church for people like that, then I don't want to have a church. So any, any number of lapses have made the list of the unacceptable lapses over the years of, of, 
of, especially in modern times. All kinds of churches have lists of unacceptable lapses. I just had a meeting with a person uh, yesterday who was heard about a six years ago. They heard about a sin I did twenty years ago, and there's and they can't get past it. And I was like, "Wow, I feel bad for you." Because that's not a very good view of grace. We we definitely aspire to holiness, character, integrity, and so forth. But we have a process for restoring people who stumble. It, it's neither like John Mark. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark out on the next journey immediately. Paul said no. Because there has to be a process of restoration. But But the mistake Christians make is you can never be restored from some things. That's wrong. The other mistake Christians make is that, oh, I just killed this guy, but I'm really sorry, so let's just, you know, have, let's have lunch. <laughs> you know, that's not exactly right either. It's not that you want, want people to grovel in it. What you want people to, to is, is to be so changed by the grace of God that that particular sin is no longer a possibility for them. And there is a permanent way to, to have residuals of the grace of God where you know you're never going to not be dealing with sin, but there will be times when you're no longer ever dealing with that sin again. You know, like I haven't done drugs in 43 years. I'm pretty sure I've got a good lead on it. <laughs> and I know there, but by the grace of God, go I. But um, that's just not in my way of life or thinking anymore. Um, not all pietism is dispensational. We already talked about that. Reform pietism limits the sovereignty of God to soteriology. It disconnects redemption from creation. Only redemption rather than... In other words, you're only saving people on a sinking ship rather than re restoring and rebuilding the world. It denies the creation or dominion mission and mandate in favor of the inner life. John 17, Jesus said, Set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. For their sakes, I set myself apart. That's what sanctify means, to set yourself apart to God. Uh, that they themselves may be also set apart to God in the truth. Now, why that's important is this. If it's only about the inner life, you'll never have enough motivation to truly be holy. If you really get gripped by seeing God honored and glorified, and then out of that, God honored and glorified by God's mission to, to set people free, you'll, you'll, be, you'll overcome all kinds of sins and problems that you've been beset by because you're no longer, your frame of reference is no longer yourself. And that's the essence of being a good husband, a good father, a good pastor, a good evangelist, a good discipler. That will set you free. You'll never be able to be sanctified just because you want a good inner life. You'll be able to be sanctified because you want to glorify God and be an instrument of God to the vessels he wants to touch. And because you realize that you can't mess up for their sakes. I, I can't afford this temptation or cheating on these finances or whatever, or taking that two extra hours in bed because people need me. 
I hope you hear that. That that will be the only motivation that will keep you growing in character for a lifetime. <clears throat> Psalm 69.6, one of my favorite prayers. I pray this all the time. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel, because for your sake I have borne reproach, etc. In other words, don't let me let your people down by my own shallow and sinful behavior. Now that is a regular daily prayer for me. And I get the right emotional about it. Because I don't know why God chooses people like me. He always takes like the worst sort of people. I told him that when he first started calling me. Like, you got the wrong guy here. <laughs> That's what Peter did. Remember when Jesus said to let down his net and so forth? And Peter threw himself in the, and he, and he swam over to the beach. And he said, Lord, depart from me. You got the wrong guy here. If you haven't had those kind of encounters with God, you're probably not very far along in, in getting started. You should have encounters like that with God all the time. Like, why me, Lord? I'm like, I'm like the worst candidate here. You expect me to become a Christian and, and love you and serve other people and actually become effective? You know, like, don't you know you're starting with cheap building materials here, Lord? <laughs> How are you going to build a really fancy building with, with, you know, bricks that fall apart like me? Well, lastly, pietism always inextricably intertwined with Neo-Pelagianism and Arminianism, and we'll talk about that next week, I think. I don't think we want to get into that today, but you should know what Neo-Pelagianism is and Arminianism because it's all through the church today. And uh, St. Augustine wouldn't be happy about that, nor Paul. <laughs> 